Man, Ruthie and I were talking about uh, some of the, the words to that, not necessarily the words to that song, but the truth to that song, how when we get to heaven, what joy it will be, not that we're going to be reunited with those that have gone before us, but that we're going to be able to be with our Savior. That is really the joy of heaven. And I joked with her and I said, if you go before me, don't be upset that when I get there, I push you to the side and run to meet my Savior, first of all. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting the way we think about it because there's so much love and attachment that we have to the people that are closest to us here in this life. And yet the joy of heaven is not going to be that you're going to get to share eternity with the same people that you were sharing eternity with or sharing this life here on earth with. But the joy of heaven is that you're going to be by your Savior. And there's probably something that we can't fully grasp about that yet because our finite minds can't comprehend the depth and the breadth and all of the wonderful majesty of God that we'll enjoy one day. But we know it to be true, and we know that that's what we have to expect. So I pray that we're looking forward to that wonderful time when the Lord calls us home as believers. In your Bibles today, we're going to be looking at a few verses from John chapter 6. So I'd invite you to turn with me at this time to John chapter 6, and we'll focus our attention this morning on verses 66 through 69 and a sermon that I've entitled, titled, What I Believe and Why. What I Believe and and why. Most of us probably have a pretty good idea as to what we believe regarding God and the Bible. Most of us can explain in some detail who Jesus is to us, what he means to us, what the Bible says about him. But when it comes to really explaining what we believe, why we believe it, some of us struggle. Some of us struggle to put the words to what we know to be true in our mind and in our heart. We struggle to just formulate and articulate properly what we actually believe inside of us. And we oftentimes find ourselves using this, this train of, of circular reasoning. When someone asks you on the street, what is it that you believe? And you might say, well, I believe what the church believes. And, well, what does your church believe? And you say, well, what the pastor preaches. Well, what does the pastor preach? Well, what the church believes. And we go through this circle where we don't really say what we want to say because maybe we can't formulate just how we want to say it and, and what we truly believe in our hearts. And so my, my hope is that as we look at scripture and really open up what it is that we believe, we might be able to come to the point where we can effectively communicate what we believe and know why it is that we believe it and not just we're believing it because the church I go to preaches this and teaches this. The goal for every Christian should be to believe in Jesus Christ, to know why you believe in Jesus Christ. Not just because your parents did or because someone told you to do it, but if you personally to believe and to know why. Now, you may not be able to articulate everything as well as the next person, but each of us should know what we believe and why we believe it. When asked about what we believe, we should be able to do more than just point people to the church and say, well, you can go there to find out what I believe. You should be able to tell them. You should be able to know what you believe, even if you can't formulate it in a perfectly clear way like someone else might be able to do it. Now, in the passage we'll be looking at this morning, we find Jesus pressing those who have been following him with very similar question to what we're asking here this morning. What do you believe and why? 
The previous day, here in the context of John chapter 6, the previous day is a very familiar story to many of us, where Jesus fed over 5,000 men and women with five small loaves of bread and two fish. And this great multitude that was fed dinner the, the evening before, they are now gathering the morning after because now their stomachs are grumbling and it's time for breakfast. Many were healed from sicknesses and diseases the day before. They were fed the day before. Now the new day has come, and they are just excited to see what else this healer and this miracle worker will do. And verse 15 of John chapter 6 tells us that they were so excited about the miracle-working power of Jesus that he could take a few small loaves of bread and a few fish and even heal so many that were sick, but even feed so many that were hungry. And they're thinking, you know what, if we can keep this thing going, we should. And verse 15 tells us that they were actually ready to take him by force and to have him become their king. They saw in Jesus free health care and free food. Why not keep that going? They wanted to keep it going as long as they could. And this is where Jesus would really get to the heart of the matter. Because the rest of John chapter 6, we see Jesus teaching some things that are very hard concept for the people to understand. So much so that many actually just turn away from him and leave. And this is where Jesus really presses the disciples who were with him. He would separate those who were serious about knowing him and who were serious about following him and those who just wanted a handout. And as a result, many who followed him that day, they turned around and they left. And this prompted Jesus to ask his disciples if they too would turn away. Your Bibles are open to John chapter 6. Follow along as I read. I'm going to begin at verse 66 and I'll read down through verse number 69. It says, From that time... Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. As the number of those who were following Christ was thinning out, Jesus asked his 12 disciples, are you also now going to leave? Now it's Peter's response that I'd like to focus our attention on this morning. Verses 68 and 69 where it says, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what I want to focus our attention on here this morning. Because Peter stands up and he makes a ringing declaration that Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God, which is the most important truth that any person can ever learn. From this passage, we're going to identify four reasons that are offered as to why we should believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Four reasons for every person to learn and to understand. Four reasons for every Christian to be able to communicate. Over the course of this Christian life, there are going to be numerous opportunities for us to share with others what we believe and why it is that we believe it. And we ought to be prepared with an adequate answer. We're told in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
Be ready always, it says. Not sometimes, not when it's convenient to you, not when you think, but always. Be ready always to give people an answer for the hope that is in you. And that requires you really knowing what you believe. Because none of us know when those opportunities are going to present themselves. God doesn't tell you on Sunday that on Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. you're going to encounter someone at the gas station who's going to walk right up to you and ask you, what do you believe and why? Tell me now. So you don't have the time to prep for that Sunday or that Wednesday meeting on Sunday. You don't have the time to do this. You don't know when those opportunities are going to present themselves. And that's why we're told in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer. There may be times when you can expect to give an answer, when you know going into a situation that you're going to be meeting with someone and this is going to come up so you can prep for that. But there are many times when the opportunity presents itself just out of nowhere. This requires us knowing what we believe and knowing why we believe it, being well-versed in Scripture because the Bible is what tells us about God. So is there a reason why we're pushing Bible reading and Bible memorization? Do you think there's a, a hidden agenda there behind the church doing this? Well, there is. And the hope is that we are so filling our minds and our hearts with the truth of God's word to the point that when we're asked to share it in church that we can do it, right? No. But the hope is that it becomes so second nature to us that it just organically comes out in our regular conversations beyond the walls of this building. So that when the opportunities present themselves just out of left field when we weren't expecting it, those scripture memorized scriptures that you filled in your heart and mind will come out as you just share with someone about who Christ is to you and all that he has done for you. Some of us have not given much thought to always being ready to give an answer of what we believe because we figure that these things are better left to those who really know what they believe, who really know the Bible. So there's a handful of people that we're going to leave that part of the witnessing up to and we're just going to do our own thing. And we spend more time filling our heads with information that will prove worthless in the scope of eternity and give little place for eternal matters. At the drop of a hat, we can talk sports to anyone. We can talk shopping or history or politics or music or movies or any number of topics under the sun with anyone because we spend so much of our time filling our heads with all this random knowledge that honestly isn't going to benefit us beyond this life. Now I want to make sure that you all understand that there's nothing wrong with spending time learning about different things. There's nothing wrong spending time watching sports. There's nothing, nothing wrong spending time reading books and, and talking politics or doing things like this. But the problem comes that when we give all of our time to learn about things that only benefit us here on earth, then we're just wasting our time. We can easily lose sight of the importance of learning about God and learning about his word. Studying the Bible becomes something we do only if there's nothing else better to do. And the more we leave off studying the Bible, the more we see it affect other areas of our lives. Church attendance becomes less a priority. It becomes more a matter of convenience. And when we're given the choice of going to church or doing something exciting, because church no longer be as, as exciting to us, church attendance suffers. And the sad reality is that church attendance is not viewed as exciting because our view of God has become so low. 
The lower our view of God, the less we're going to prioritize studying God's word and being in God's word and being in church, being around the people who love God. A person's view of God will eventually reveal itself in the way that he lives his life. Many people convince themselves that they're living the right life, that they're doing everything that they should be doing, that they're a good Christian because they know some scripture and they semi-regularly attend church, but they are nowhere near ready to give an answer for what they believe. They claim to be living for God. They claim to even be serving God, but they have made gods out of everything else in their lives based on how much time and how much attention they give to other things. Whatever we depend on, whatever it is that consumes our minds, whatever governs our attention from day to day, whatever is the object of our desire, I hate to break it to you, but that is what becomes our God. And many Christians have shown that their God is not the God of the Bible. Now, before we get into the four reasons we should believe Jesus to be the Son of God, let's first identify where we can turn to for the truth. Because that's what Jesus was asking. As he was revealing the truth to so many, and so many were turning away, and he looked at the disciples and he says, will you also turn away? Peter stood up and he said this in verse number 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where should we go for the truth? Now, we've made a mess of things here on earth. We have skewed a view, a really skewed view of what truth really is. So it would be probably worth a few moments to set the record straight this morning. Here in John 6, Jesus' popularity was at an all-time high. Healing so many who were sick, healing so many who were diseased, feeding over 5,000. This all made Jesus incredibly famous. And the day following... Everyone that was there the night before was ready for more. They were fed dinner the previous evening. Now their stomachs are grumbling. They want breakfast. They want more food. They want more provisions. They want more free health care. And as previously mentioned, verse 15 here in John chapter 6, it tells us that they were ready to make Jesus their king. They wanted to keep that gravy train flowing. But Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And that it was best for them not to have more of their temporal needs met. But for them to finally be fed spiritually. And as you read throughout the rest of John chapter 6, which we're not going to do here this morning, you find that Jesus taught some incredibly difficult teachings for them to understand that were so confusing to many who were following him up to this point. But notice again what we see in our passage here, beginning at verse number 66 again. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. When he actually got to the root of the issue, when he actually started teaching them what they really needed to hear, they didn't want to hear it. When the gravy train stopped, when the food stopped coming, when the free health care stopped, not that he didn't care about these other temporal issues, but he was trying to get them to see what was really their need. They didn't want it. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. The multitude was turning away from Jesus, and Jesus asked his disciples if they would also leave. And Peter then asked a very penetrating question to Jesus, one that is worth us asking ourselves Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, if we turn away from you, 
If we stop following you, where else could we turn to get the truth? Where else could we possibly go to receive the truth if it isn't from you? This is the question that has led many to look for the truth in the wrong places. In search for the truth, many turn to atheism, choosing not to believe in God, but to believe that the universe and man were created out of nothing but himself. One of the biggest flaws of atheism, though, is that it is forced to deny all intelligence, all the visible evidence in the world around us, not to mention all the observable facts that scientists have found prove intelligent design, prove that someone, a supreme being, orchestrated everything and put design and order into everything that has been created. Atheism has always been just a a fancy way of trying to deny what you already believe to be true in your heart. That God is real and that God is a sustainer and creator of all things. As much as people wish it to be real, atheism offers no lasting satisfaction. Instead of turning to Jesus, others will turn to philosophy. What's interesting is that if you spend any time studying some of the great philosophers of old, you'll find that philosophy actually never satisfied their own hearts. The German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer once said, he said, life is a curse of endless craving and endless unhappiness. English philosopher Bertrand Russell didn't believe in God, but he said this at the end of his life. He said, philosophy proved a washout to me. What philosophers have found is that philosophy without God is nothing but emptiness. Instead of turning to Jesus, others will turn to materialism, to hope to fill this void that has been left, to offer them some lasting satisfaction, pursuit of things, more money, more things, more possessions, that will help them be satisfied here in life. But those with What those who venture down this path find is that materialism never ends up satisfying the deepest longing of the human heart. God didn't create us for things. God created us in his image and for himself to get enjoyment out of him. And even if we do have material things, which there's nothing wrong with you having, our lives will still be empty if we live with them without God. Things do not satisfy because things do not last. They weren't made to last. Everything has a shelf life. Everything comes to the point where it needs to be replaced. Things get old, become obsolete. They lose their value. They become useless. Whatever temporary satisfaction we got out of them, and it will only be a temporary satisfaction, it will quickly fade as something newer and better comes around, promising even greater satisfaction, which is ultimately just a lie. Materialism is not the answer. Others turn to the world religions to find truth. Human beings are naturally religious. And many who turn away from Christ will turn to the religions of the world. When Peter was asked if he would also go away, if he would also turn away with the multitudes that were turning away from Jesus, again he responds in verse number 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter didn't even realize how powerful his words really were. Because in that statement here in John chapter 6, where he says, Thou hast the words of eternal life, 
In that statement, he was acknowledging the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. He was acknowledging the eternal nature of God, which may not seem to be that big of a deal to us today. But consider all that Peter did in the last hours of Christ's life leading up to the cross to try and prevent Christ's death. Here in John chapter 6, he's saying, Lord, you are the only one who has the words of eternal life. And what he's saying is, Lord, you're eternal. Later on at the end, he's going to do everything he can to make sure that Jesus doesn't go to the cross, that he doesn't die, that he doesn't have to do any of the suffering. But earlier on, he's saying, Lord, you're the only one that we can follow after because you're the only one who has the words of eternal life because you are eternal. If only he would have put that train of thought together later on. But isn't that us? How much do we know the truth here? And yet when the rubber meets the road, we struggle to apply what we know to be true to our own lives. The same Peter was fighting tooth and nail to try and prevent Christ dying on the cross. Here is acknowledging the eternal nature of Christ. And it goes to show you how human these men were, how human you and I are. Even though they believe Christ to be the Son of the living God, as he professes here, their faith was being severely tested later on during those trying hours when Christ was arrested, when he was crucified and he was buried. But what makes Christ stand apart from all other religious figureheads of the world is the fact that what Peter declared here in John chapter 6 and verse number 68 and 69 is absolutely true. Thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter may have struggled with this when the pressure was intensified and the heat was turned up, but it doesn't take away from the fact that what he declared here in John chapter 6 was actually absolutely true. Jesus is the only one who has the words of eternal life. Jesus is indeed the only son of God. Jesus is the only truth. Go and visit the graves of any other religious figurehead, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, and whoever you want to come up with. And every so-called religious leader you'll find is that their graves are all occupied. Go and visit the tomb where Jesus was laid after he died upon that cross. The amazing part is you can walk right in and find that it is empty. It is unlike every other tomb that you'll find. Because unlike every other religious leader, Jesus is the real deal. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and nothing changes about that world religion. You can take Confucius out of Confucianism. Okay, I'm making up words now. Confucianism. And nothing changes. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and nothing changes. But the moment you take Jesus out of Christianity, you've destroyed the Christian faith. The reason why is because Christianity is not another creed. It is not another code. It is not a cause. It's not even a church. Christianity is a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And vital meaning that there's life to it. He is the son of the living God. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and the wisdom of God. We can turn to atheism, philosophy, materialism, otherworldly religions, but we will never, and I promise you, never find the truth. 
Only in Jesus will we find the answers to the questions that really matter because only in Jesus can there be true satisfaction to the deepest cravings of the human heart. This is where the question is raised. How can we know for sure that Jesus is who he claims to be? Why do we believe in Jesus? Here's where we get to the four reasons why we should believe Jesus as the Son of God. First, the historical reason. The historical reason. Even those who are just utterly opposed to believing in Jesus as the Son of God, they cannot deny the historical figure that was Jesus Christ. They can't deny him. He's a real person that existed. Secular historians continually list Jesus as the greatest man of history even though they refused to believe him as the Son of God. All of history attests to the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he lived a life unlike any other man, did incredible things. All throughout the pages of history are seen the undeniable footprints of Jesus. In fact, each year, although it's been changed in some circles, but each year is now called A.D., Anno Domini. In other words, the year of the Lord. So when you look back throughout history, you find that it is the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that provides for us an almost natural separation in history. There's a natural division throughout history that starts with the birth of Jesus. Before Christ, the years were counting down. Almost as if they were counting down towards something incredible. Coincidentally, right? Jesus was born... And the years start counting up. So every time you write down the date on a check or a letter or an email, you're giving testimony to the fact that Jesus was there. Regardless of what people may think of him, they cannot deny that Jesus is a fact of history. When you think about the history of the church, you cannot explain it apart from the fact that Jesus lived among us. In fact, the history of the early church, it points to the reality of Jesus Christ. From the early days of the church, they not only taught that Jesus lived on earth, but that he performed miracles, that he died on the cross, that he was buried in the tomb, and that he's no longer in that tomb because he rose victoriously on the third day. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the central theme of the teaching and the preaching of the church. They preached with confidence that Jesus died, that he was buried in a tomb, and that three days later he rose because many were eyewitnesses to that truth. We can safely say that the resurrection is a fact because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proceeded to proclaim it for years without ever once denying it. Every one of them was either beaten, tortured, thrown in prison, or even killed for this belief. And they would not recant or deny it. They would not have endured that if their testimony was based on a lie. People are not willing to lay down their life for a lie. It has been said that there is more proof that Jesus rose from the dead than there is proof that Julius Caesar lived. Quite honestly, you could insert the name of any historical figure there, and it would still be true. 
We're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion, it says, by many infallible proofs. The Bible says that, by many infallible proofs. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul declared that his ministry centered on the fact and the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said this, he said, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of His holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Earlier on here in John chapter 6 and verse number 38, Jesus declared that He Himself came down from heaven. Notice what it says in verse number 38. John chapter 6, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. There is unlimited infallible historical proof that Jesus was here. That's the historical reason. The second reason we find is the scriptural reason. The scriptural reason. Over and over in the Bible, you find how it speaks about the birth and the death and their life and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at what Jesus declared here in John chapter 6 and verses 44 and 45. John 6, 44 and 45. Jesus says, No man can come to me Except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. We also see him earlier declare in John chapter 5. Turn one chapter previous in verse number 39. John chapter 5 and verse number 39. As he's speaking about the scriptures proving and giving the, the, the evidence of this truth that he was real. John 5, 39, Jesus says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The scriptures testify of the reality of Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ because I believe the Bible to be the word of God. Now, some argue that such a statement doesn't do enough to answer the question as to whether Jesus is truth. Because now we can ask the question, well, is the Bible true then? If we can make the argument that say Jesus is true because of what the Bible says, does the Bible say what is true? Can the Bible be trusted? And I certainly don't want you to think that our belief in Jesus and the Bible is just circular reasoning as well. well I believe in Jesus because of what the Bible says, and I believe what the Bible says because of what Jesus says. And we can just go in a circle again like what the church says and what the pastor preaches. No. Let me offer several proofs of the inspiration and the truthfulness of the Word of God. First, we see the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. Just in case you're doubting as to whether or not the Bible can be trusted. We see the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. There are hundreds of biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled to the minutest detail. I don't have time to go through every single one of them here this morning. But over and over and over again, all the prophecies that have been fulfilled, and there's plenty that haven't yet, but all of them that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled perfectly right to the minutest little detail which completely removes chance and coincidence. There is no such thing as chance and coincidence. It is all the will and the providence of God. We see first the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible, and secondly, we see the unity of the theme and message of the Bible. The unity of the theme and the message of the Bible. It is completely impossible for a book that was written over a span of 1,500 years by a group of 40 different writers on several different continents and three different languages to be in complete unity of theme and message. This doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that you get one book 
with all of these factors and the theme and the message all stay the same from beginning to the end? It doesn't happen that way. It's like a, a hurricane coming through and destroying a paper factory and it forms a dictionary. That doesn't happen. And yet, this is the Bible before us. Third, we see the preservation of the Bible. The Bible has not only survived through the centuries, but year after year, the Bible is still the most popular book. No other book has been preserved as long as the Bible, surviving against time and opposition. And no other book has the power to draw people to it. Fourth, we see the scientific and the historical accuracy of the Bible. In every attempt where science has been pitted against the Bible, the Bible has always been proved accurate. Year after year, history books are being revised. When's the last time you got a revision to your Bible? Never will happen. Because the Bible is the Word of God and it is constant. And it is true forever. Fifth, we see the undeniable power of the Bible. Look at what Jesus said in John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The undeniable power of the Bible. The truths of the Bible, it transforms lives. And I know this to be true because I have personally witnessed it in my own life. If I did not believe in the power of the Bible, I wouldn't waste my breath preaching from this book even once. I'd put it on the shelf and find a new profession. There's plenty of irrefutable scriptural evidence, though, that the Bible is absolutely true. Third, I want you to consider the spiritual reason. We've looked at the scriptural reason, the historical reason, but third, I want you to look at the spiritual reason. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14, it says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What this verse is telling us is that the truth is, with our human minds alone, we will never be able to comprehend who Jesus really is. We just can't put it together. Without the help of the Holy Spirit giving us spiritual life, allowing us to understand spiritual matters, we will remain in darkness as to the truth about Jesus Christ. This is the exact lesson that Jesus was teaching the multitude here in John 6, verse 63. Again, he says, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. And quickeneth literally means to give life. There was no life. And he says, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and brings life to what was dead. The flesh profiteth nothing. You can't do anything in yourself, in your own strength, in your own will, in your own intellect, in your own whatever it is. There is no life-giving power to us. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words, he says, that I speak unto you, they are spirit, which brings life, and they are life. That is where it comes from. That is where we go from being taken out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Many of them could not understand what he was saying here because such truths are only spiritually discerned. 
And without the help of the Holy Spirit, we're left in the dark. Later on in John chapter 15, and in verse number 26, when Jesus spoke to the 11 disciples at that point, he said this, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit, he says, will reveal the truth to his people. And what we find is that it is a twofold witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict, and the Holy Spirit will convince. He will convict and convince us about Jesus if we really want to know. This is both an external and an internal witness. As the Apostle John explains in 1 John chapter 5, and verses 6 through 8, he says this, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, I don't expect people to believe in Jesus as a Son of God because he was a historical figure or because the Bible says so or because I even say so. It takes more than just my own testimony to convince someone because anything I can talk someone into, someone else can talk them out of. In fact, the Bible states that no one can truly be convinced of Jesus being the Son of God without the convicting and the convincing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what we're told in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and his witness is greater than any witness of men. You're not going to get there because of what I say or because of anything else someone else says. You're going to get there because of the Holy Spirit working in your life. He's the only one who can help you understand the truth about Jesus Christ and who he is. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, it offers a little more insight into this. It says, if we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, not because someone told me to believe it, but because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to me through the Word of God and through the evidence around me. And now that I have received Jesus as my Savior, I, as 1 John 5.10 says, have the witness of Christ within me. You can argue with me day and night and never successfully convince me to deny Jesus as to deny that I would claim that Jesus being the Son of God. That would be like trying to convince me that cheesecake is not good after I've taken a delicious bite of it. It's already in me! You can argue about it until you're blue in the face, but I've already seen it to be true, believed it to be true because the witness of Jesus Christ is in me because he saved me. Say what you want. I'm never going to deny it. It's too good. 
It's too good to be not real. I've personally experienced his goodness in my life to ever go back on that. I can't. And I, I won't be able to. The spiritual reason. But fourth, consider the personal reason. The personal reason. Notice verses 68 and 69 here in John chapter 6 once more. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. What Peter was saying is that they have nowhere else to go because they have personally seen and personally believed Jesus to be the Son of the living God. He doesn't say, well, you know, b- before we make a decision as to whether we're going to go or whether we're going to stay, why don't you give me a reason to stay? Why don't you prove to me that you're really who you are? And then we'll go back and we'll deliberate a little bit and then we'll come and give you an answer to that. No, he says, Lord, where else can we go? We've personally seen and heard from you that you are indeed the Son of the living God. And there's no doubt in our minds that you are indeed who you claim to be. The personal reason. I believe in Jesus because Jesus is real to me. I've personally experienced him in my life. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He doesn't say, you know, I'm pretty sure in whom I believe and I'm, you know, fairly confident that he'll be able to keep all the promises that he's made to me. No. No. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I believe in Jesus because he is my Savior. And I know that I know that I know that I know that he is God. A man and his wife were driving on a mountain road on vacation, enjoying a, just a beautiful day. It was getting late in the evening, and on this windy mountain road, the wife said, Sweetheart, you know, we should probably think about stopping to get some gas. Before it gets too late, before there's no more gas stations on this road. In a typical male fashion, the husband replied, It's all right. We have plenty of gas. We'll stop in time. Don't you worry about it. Well, the wife, she drifted off to sleep, and the husband kept on driving down this beautiful mountain road when the night fell, and the needle on the dashboard crept over to empty. And he began to look for a gas station, but there was nothing on that dark mountain road. It was dark, and not a single gas station, not a single store in sight. And it was at this point that the husband knew that he was in big trouble. She told me to stop and get gas when there was time to get gas and places to get gas from. If we run out of gas on this mountain road, I don't know what she's going to do to me. This is what he was thinking to himself. So he began to pray, Lord God, please, please let there be a gas station just up ahead. And then when it seemed that he was driving on fumes, he saw a light and a small little grocery store. The lights were shining through the window. It was open at that odd hour. And out front was an old-fashioned gas pump that looked more like an antique than something that was actually working. The man had no choice. He pulled in and he went inside and asked the grocer if they sold gas. And the grocer nodded and he said, yes, he said, I'll be outside to pump the gas for you. So the husband was praising the Lord as the man came outside and was 
filling his tank full of gas. He was praising the Lord because he was so overcome with relief, knowing that if his wife found out that there was no gas and they were stranded on the side of the road, she probably would have killed them and there would have been no witnesses to know what happened. happened. But he stood up and he stretched and just let out a big sigh and breathed in a lot of this beautiful, fresh mountain air. And he said to the grocery store owner who was pumping his gas, he said, it is great to be alive, isn't it? The man didn't even raise his head and he replied, he says, I don't know, I've never been no other way. <laughs> if you're saved today, you have been the other way. And there's been a radical and a dramatic change within you since Jesus came into your heart. That is why I know Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God. We have good reasons to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Where else can you go to find the truth? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And my prayer is that each of us are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God because we've personally found him to be true in our lives. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us. Lord, we can't go into full detail describing what you've done for us because time in our lives would not allow it. Lord, you've done for us everything that is required for our eternity to be set in you. May we have the confidence and the boldness of Peter at this time in his life. Lord, where others forsook you, others turned away, Lord, he was confident to stand by your side and to confidently declare that he could do that because he personally believed that you were the Savior, the Son of the living God, and in you alone were found the words of eternal life. I pray, Lord, that we would know what we believe and why we believe it, so that we can always be ready to give an answer to those who ask us of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.